welcome to the God is not an asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. You know, my relationship with some of the Jewish community um, has been very dear. And then others has, you know, it's been cordial. But I have found that there are fewer people like you, Barb. I mean, you serve on the executive committee of the in AACP with me because, you know, you're you're broad and wide that way. You know, you're interested, you're curious, and your desire and quest for justice is for everyone. And I really respect that. I appreciate that. And it just happens to be a way that Carrie and I think. Um, but it's not always the case. <sighs> I, I was... It was very heavy for me when some of the uh, local uh, Jewish figures asked me out to lunch after the expression. Uh, Kanye West, you know, said some things, wrote some things that were clearly anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. And it didn't seem like they were aware of the fact that for over a decade, Kanye West has been anti-Black. You know, he, I mean, President Obama 12 years ago, called him a jackass. And and yet he didn't suffer financially until he went anti-Semitic. He could be as anti-Black as he, yeah. as he wanted to be. And, you know, there were no businesses that cut him off. And one of the reasons is that his kind of hip-hop has found a wide berth in the white community, in the suburban com mm -hmm. community, and so he didn't have to care as much of what black people were thinking. He still was, you know, he was still going to get his, his check. So. Yeah, that's, um, and I, I think as I think we've discussed before, you know, where, how deeply do we know these issues and where are, where's the Jewish community when the black community really needs them to support, come in and uplift and hold up these really powerful times and fight against hatred with you, with us together. Yeah, Perhaps you know, before we, we go any further, maybe David can introduce Barbara. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we know yeah. who we're talking to. Really good idea. Good idea. <laughs> Today we have Barb Parmet, who, unlike most of our guests so far, does not emerge from a cultural Christian background. And it has been my desire to explore, and I will say to any listener, if you come from a different background and you have become a broader thinker, more inclusive, 
uh, less dogmatic. Uh, we could be interested in your story, too, because we are here to help one another. And that's why we have uh, Barb apartment with us. And she is part of an organization. It's actually a national organization called Jewish Voice for Peace, an organization dedicated to a U.S. foreign policy based on peace on human rights and respect for international law and uh, extracting uh, from Jewish Voice for Peace's website, it says there, we know that opposing Zionism or even discussing it can be painful, can strike at the deepest trauma and greatest fears of many of us. Zionism is a 19th century political ideology that emerged in a moment where Jews were defined as irrevocably outside of a Christian Europe. European anti-Semitism threatened and ended millions of Jewish lives in pogroms, in exile, and in the Holocaust. So here is a pro-Palestinian lives organization that is Jewish-led. And this is really what Barbara is about in many ways. And I think we can start here and then, you know, ask, ask you, Barbara, to introduce yourself and talk about why Jewish Voice for Peace from your perspective. And then a little bit later, I've asked you to share. I mean, you shared your story with us. You, you, you wrote it out. And I thought, okay, we don't always do this, but I would love for you to just read what you wrote because it's so heartfelt and so, you know, so articulate. So would you uh, just uh, say who you are, Barbara? Thank you, David. Yeah, saying who I am, that's actually an interesting uh, thing. <laughs> because in the past, I did not introduce myself as a Jewish anti-Zionist. It was really, and it continues to be in certain areas, very dangerous, that you could be very... I don't know about physically harmed, but certainly uh, told that you're outside the tent, which I have been told by a Jewish rabbi that I was outside the tent, which is always um, quite striking. And Jewish Voice for Peace was a place where I found my people who supported the Palestinian people who I wanted to support all of my adult life and found very difficult to talk about with Jews, with my family. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about that in my, my little piece I put together, which was very helpful to me in finding a way to talk about this. Because I, I want to be open to talking, well, to anyone, but to Jews. And for me personally, it's been the most difficult talking to other Jewish people. And I've often been, I don't know if there's, an, I don't know what you would call it from the other side, but people walk away from me, turn their back on me, or just I feel they don't want me to be there. Or if I'm there, not mention it. And so I've learned these boundaries that, that are put in place, uh, which are, you know, uh, and I've self-censored myself in many situations, but as I've engage with more community and communities of color and just more social justice, racial justice, economic justice, 
you know, that's becoming clear that when I say I'm an anti-Zionist Jew, they go, okay, now I can speak openly and others can speak openly because if I can't speak about it, others certainly do not feel free to speak and say the word Israel or particularly the word Palestine. So that's why, you know, I, I'm really appreciated. I'd love to read what I've written here. I think that'll, because it was the most direct way for me to Please do. Great. So thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. Here we go. Ironically, it was in Jerusalem in 1969 when I began to question the Old Testament Jew, the Old Testament God. I was on pilgrimage with 40 16-year-olds from the Jewish community in Kansas City. Among us were those with various levels of religious observance. Some kept kosher, others were more reformed. We came from different synagogues and temples. We were there to visit holy sites, as well as the Dead Sea, Kibbutzim, archaeological sites, the souk in the Old City, the beach at Eilat. We even met David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel at Stade Boker in the desert. One day, we were listening to a rabbi talk to us about the 613 commandments in the Torah, the Old Testament. I asked the rabbi, if I do not keep every one of the 613 commandments, does that mean I'm not a good Jew? He said, yes. Something happened to me at that moment. My body was telling me in my gut, that he was wrong. I knew I was a good person. I did not know what that meant as far as God was concerned. I still recited the Shemua, which is a declaration of faith to God that you declare on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates. Mostly, I felt rejected. There was no room for discussion, but something in me knew he was wrong. I was a good girl, and I knew better than to try and argue with him. I was used to being ignored as a girl, that my opinions did not matter. I lost every debate at the dinner table to my brothers and my father. I was used to losing the debate, yet knowing at some level that my feelings were correct. Years later, my Zen teacher, after weeks of rigorous silent meditation, on the last day of retreat, told us we could each be a secret agent out in the world. For example, she said, when you're in line at the grocery store and people are grumpy and impatient, our job is to be present and patient and kind. Mm. I started meditating at that time when I was in a lot of physical and mental pain with anger at my parents and confusion about the meaning of life. At that moment, I was pulled into a community of love. From 1990 to 1995, I volunteered at Heath House for people living with AIDS. I cleaned toilets and took pictures of the residents, knowing I was making portraits for their families when their loved ones died. For five years, I hung out with gay men, street people, and sex workers. Most importantly, I worked with these incredibly loving human beings who took care of everyone in the last portion of their lives. These folks were the first people in my life to show me what unconditional love looks like. At that moment, I was also making art with the pink triangle. 
the AIDS activists that called themselves ACT UP to End AIDS, used the pink triangle that had been a symbol which homosexuals were forced to wear by the Nazis when they were sent to concentration camps and murdered. ACT UP took that pink triangle and turned it upside down, transforming it from a symbol of hate into one of resistance. Meanwhile, I was very upset. As a Jewish person, I was always aware of Israel and Palestine. At that time, the Israeli Defense Force was demolishing Palestinian homes with military bulldozers. The occupied West Bank, home to over 2 million Palestinians, kept getting smaller and smaller due to fences and walls around their, their farms and their olive groves. Their olive trees were destroyed. The water was stolen. They were forced to go through military checkpoints in order to go to work, to go to school, to go to hospitals. Palestinian children have lived under military occupation for over four generations. Finally, in the early 2000s, I connected with Jewish Voice for Peace. The leadership is full of queer and non-binary folks. More recently, Jews of color, Sephardic Jews from Spain, Mizrahi Jews from North Africa, have been a strong voice, voices in the liberation movement. Now I work with Students for Justice in Palestine and Palestinian feminists. Many are in families that have been in diaspora since their family lost everything in 1948. We now know that the Israeli government has always planned for the destruction of the Palestinian people in an ongoing Nakba, or catastrophe. I know how hard it is for American Jews to give up the idea that Israel is a safe haven. My greatest wish is for Jews to begin to face their own culpability in supporting an apartheid regime. And for Jews in diaspora to begin to take responsibility for their part in financing the oppression of the Palestinian people with $3.8 billion in U.S. military aid every year. Many Jews live in terror of anti-Semitism. I live in terror of white supremacy and Jewish supremacy and the extreme right-wing hatred of the Palestinian people. I fear the patriarchy and the oppression of all that is feminine everywhere. At the end of my mother's life with cancer, she asked me, how did you get this way? Though I felt loved by my family, I never felt spiritually supported and have had to find my own way with the forces that are greater than any one dogma. After 2016, I swore I would not live a segregated life and I have slowly been developing relationships in those communities made to feel marginalized and unseen as I follow my brothers and sisters in fighting for racial and economic justice. I use my white privilege to promote opportunities for young artists of color so they can lead us out of the land of white supremacy and hate. For the past 20 years, I've had a strong Tibetan meditation practice. My concept of God is one of developing the characteristics of all great beings of compassion throughout space and time. The word Buddha simply means to be fully awake. When we are awake to compassion, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, then we carry the superpower 
of love and resistance. Thank you. Thank you, Barb. Um, thank you for being vulnerable like this. There's a power in vulnerability that you can't find anywhere else. When I uh, meet, when I enter into a relationship with a rabbi, one of the first things I will say, uh, you, you know, my my studies, my my doctoral dissertation um, had to do with early religions in the West, um, with a focus on trying to analyze. Well, here's the title of my dissertation: How the process of doctrinal standardization in the later Roman Empire relates to Christian triumphalism. Mm. I just really needed to understand how the post-imperial Jesus became an icon of power, political power, and and oppression and genocide and racism and all of these things. And I came to the conclusion, and so whenever I'm meeting a rabbi, uh, having a conversation for the first time, I make sure they know that I believe that uh, Western Christianity is inherently anti-Semitic that the way that we understand Christianity in the West would completely collapse if it, if you pulled away the, the Jenga piece of anti-Semitism. And so it's the only way that I can understand this, or not, not even understand, begin to understand this, because I, in the world, I do not understand anti-Semitism otherwise. I just can't figure it out. I can't figure out white supremacy any other way than to acknowledge the influence of cultural Christianity. And so that doesn't stop me from uh, having this special relationship with Jesus. But my understanding of Jesus is that this Palestinian, this, this peasant, this pal- Palestinian Jew who struggled against empire, not was complicit in empire. And so, you know, I don't have a problem with that Jesus, but the thing is, is that when I hear people talking and singing about Jesus, sometimes it makes me cringe because there has to be some self-analysis here. There has to be, you know, personally and culturally. So I'm saying all of this, Barb, just wondering if there is an essence in Judaism, and I don't even know if I should say Judaism, but if there's an essence in your ancestry that you you must hold on to, you must draw strength from. Yes. There's one thing that I always think about, and it's the way, and I, I think it's in other traditions as well. It's not that only in Judaism, but you will find Anything, the Talmud, which is the commentary on the Bible, when I was going to Hebrew school, every word was commented on, not once, not twice, but you'd have eight or ten rabbis just saying, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. This is the way I see it. And everybody disagreed on everything, on every single word. And I guess I took that in. And and you find um, and because Jews did not were not allowed to own property for quite a thousand years, <laughs> the word was their only way of 
of being in the world. And, you know, they, and we're diasporic people in general, or we were until we landed, until Israel came and took over what they say is a Jewish land, but I don't think so. So the one piece would be that way of looking at everything and saying there's this and there's that and going deeper. And there's so many layers to every everything we do and think and say. So that would be the only thing I carry forward. One of the things from, from the beginning of our conversation that really stuck out to me that I, I so appreciate and uh, I appreciate in you and I relate to deeply is that position of truth speaker and boundary walker to your own people, right? Um, as a white-bodied person, that's the work that I do. And it's, it's deeply, it's very, it's hard work. And the reason it's hard work is because it, it, it taps into our deepest longing, inbred longing for, for belonging, right? That we all have, that every human being has, right? Yes, yes. And, and the things that we will um, often do in order to obtain and maintain that sense of belonging often requires, uh, requires us to betray those things that, that we know are good and right. Right. And so when we go, "Mm, I can't do that anymore. I can't betray those things that are good and right and just. And that calls us to then be the, the peacemaker, not the peacekeeper, right? But the peacemaker among our own people, our own tribe, right? And the, the deep rejection that that causes, it's, it's deeply painful. It's a deeply painful thing. And um, I think until you walk that walk, you can't, it's difficult to understand, you know? So I just really appreciate so, so very much that work that you're doing because it's not, it's not easy. It is not easy. It's deeply painful work. I would just say, yes, that's true. And it's to walk that path as all of us do. And once you've done it for a long, a longer time, initially it's, it's quite terrifying. Mm-hmm. I went to a psychiatrist at one point. I said, am I crazy? I can't even talk to my own people. And he said, you are not crazy. Right. And he was, right. <laughs> I know I am not crazy. And right. so I know, and more and more as we do the work, it's hard. There are certain places that are very, very challenging. But if we can hold ourselves steady and quiet for a little bit, the terror can, you know, subside. Anger can subside. You can come process it in some way and come forward again with your own truths. And that's, yeah. that's all we can do. It's I want to ask you about any affinity with your Abrahamic and uh, connection. But first, let me just say, I also think that it's very Western imperial how we have called this little tiny part of the world the Holy Land. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, how is it that we have hundreds of millions of people from Hindu and Buddhist and Sikh and Jain traditions from, from, you know, farther east, you know, the, the beginnings of, of certain religions. How is that not holy? And then 
How is it that right now we are all on indigenous land, you know, sacred grounds, unseated here in Santa Barbara, it's Chumash land. How is this not holy ground? So I, I, to, to me, there's even something imperial in calling that the holy land. And do you have, do you sense a, a connection? Do you value any connection to being Abrahamic? And do you also see how that connects you to, to Muslims and Christians? You know, for me, once I've, I've gone through so many different processes with this, but one part of it is feeling the patriarchal aspect of Judaism, how it was practiced in my synagogue how I felt discriminated against as a woman or as a girl. As a girl, I had a bat mitzvah. The rabbi wrote my speech. was like, no, you, you can't even say anything that comes out of your mind. And so, you know, of course, when you're young, you just do what you're told. And I was a good girl. I did not resist until I left home at 18. And then I went right at it, you know. But so for me, it's been very hard all the way from childhood, to identify with that Abrahamic, you know, lineage from these to these to these, and where are the women, what happened to the women, what happened to the daughters, what happened to the concubines, and what are the stories, you know, that the men tell about what happened, and they the women didn't really get to say. There's a couple judges in there, but that's it. So we get Esther, and so she's a concubine, right? Yeah. So our choices were not that great. So in I honor everybody's tradition, and I haven't, I don't, because I think there's a lot of ways to analyze all of these traditions from a Western or non-Western. And so... Womanism has done such a wonderful job yes. of giving voices back to the, the women of the Hebrew Bible. Like Hagar? Um, <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly who I'm thinking of. And yes, there's so much good stuff. Just a Sister Away is one of my favorite books um, about about that. But um, but yeah, I I I often weep for the women of mm -hmm. the scripture and the ways in which they have been brutalized and silenced. The um, title of uh, in two weeks, the title of my sermon. Is gonna uh, it's gonna be drawn from this story of Hagar, mm -hmm. and the title is the startling legitimacy of your story. <laughs> you know the understory. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. You know all of our stories are legit. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, also to the point that David has been making around imperialism. You know, the the question of uh, and this is something that I come up against, not against, but that I wrestle with often in the work that I do publicly in some of the consulting work that I do with nonprofit organizations around anti-racism and white identity is the complexity of being white-bodied and so having an embodiment that is dominant um, and then still an identity that is marginalized and oppressed as a Jewish person in the United States, right? And, and the 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 the, I call it intersectional dominance is what I'm calling it in my doctor, doctoral work. Is So this intersectional dominance, that identity, is very, it can get very, very messy, right? So there's that and the layers and the complexity and having to hold the paradox of all of that. And then there's also 
the the complicity of uh, to David's point of the Western Church and Christian nationalism specifically, and which adds another layer where they they um, idolize this Israel, but not for Israel's sake. It's for their own sake because yeah. they're going to become the new Israel, right? Like that's mm. their idea. They're, they are the new empire, the new Christian empire. It's not for the uplift of, of Jews all over the world by any, it's for their own uplift, right? Which is even more problematic and, and, um, another, and, and again, speaking to the patriarchy of it. So I don't know. I don't really have necessarily a question, but I would love to hear your response to that that idea of that layered dominance? Well, I think if you follow power, which is what we're talking about with imperialism, but I would say, for me, I follow power at a visceral level. When I meet people, no matter who they are, what color they are, if I sense a dominance, I tend to shut down and pull back. Yeah. Because... I have, that's my response and from my biographical material. But I, and once I understand that place of dominance, I can figure out with my support of my community and my fellow travelers, okay, if I need to deal with something that's very powerful, that I can't control, that may in fact have power over me, I, I try to figure out a way to be a secret agent. And so that compassion and kindness, which I have to pull in for myself, mm -hmm. sometimes we just have to survive ourselves and that terrible thing that happened to us over and over and over again, where people dominated us for one reason or another. And yeah. I'm so sensitive to it. When I yeah. meet someone, it's like, I am not talking to you, buddy, because you <laughs> are not someone who yeah. care about anything I say. You, you know, oh, it's um, very that. It's that level. You it's very visceral. In the, you know, in the um, in African American divinity schools, often the songs of enslaved people, the spirituals, are called the Third Testament, mm. um, because there is an authority there that is not included in the others. No. And, you know, the, you know, the songs are, in, are really freedom songs encoded. The term Jesus is used wherever you want to say freedom, or sometimes the word Zion is you used, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So Zion means different things to different people, but for enslaved people, Zion was the other side of the Mississippi yeah. or into Mexico or, you know, Canada. That's, that was what Zion was. Their own and, spirit land, their own yes, spirit. Yes. And so when you talk about tracing power, wow. I mean, that's the only way. I mean, I I still reference the Bible, but I mean, I mean, my Mother's Day sermon was about the other women, uh, not the matriarchs, but their slaves, Bilhah mm -hmm. and, and Zilpah. You know, I mean, because Obviously, with answer being so close to you know an enslaved ancestry, these are the these are my people, and their stories are my story, and yet, and I'm sure you can re relate to this, Barb, um, and yet even in the uh, African American religious tradition, there's a high level of uh, 
heteronormativity. You know, I, I'm watching some change take place, but it has alienated me from so many people. And I, I can relate to you and your experience, particularly because of that. Uh, I, I've become something of an outsider. And so what that forces me to do is find new friends. Outsiders unite. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's who we are. All three of us <laughs> on this call right now. <laughs> That's who we are. We, you know, you can, we can become very lonely. Um, yes. Because our new friends are as wonderful as they are. And probably we connect more authentically and deeply than we did with our old friends. That does not obviate the fact that they are our old friends. And we and journey sometimes together. family. And family. And, yes. and all of a sudden we don't, we don't have them. We, we don't have that family album to, you know, peruse the pages of together. And so this is, this is what brings us together. And you know, it's called beloved community. It's yes. the dream of loving people, right? I, I thank you so I much. Yeah. yeah, that is that is really beautiful. And my, as usual, my brain is going in five million direct directions, and I want to follow one of these tracks. So I hope you, you don't mind if I take this here, because I am always being challenged by um, some of the brilliant minds. And I, I believe that this, and I don't remember where I saw it, but I believe it was from the Black community. Because as we were talking about power, as you were talking about power, I'm sitting here thinking, how is it that a library of stories and books that we call the, the that Christians call the Bible, right? Um, that has in the Hebrew uh, Bible and wisdom teachings has these things, these stories about a people journeying, a, pe a displaced people journeying to find their land. And then in the Gospels and letters, it's about resisting empire and it's about aligning with the marginalized how did that group of stories become fodder <laughs> for you know white patriarchal christian nationalism and empire like how do they take these stories and turn it into that right like it's it's fascinating to me the mental machinations that have to go you have to go through in order to do that right but then as somebody uh, and i really would love to know your thoughts on this barb Somebody point out, pointed out that those journeying, those people who were journeying through the desert, you know, that was like, as, all, as usual, that was a, a, a group of stories written by the victors in some way, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the story that we have. So those people were actually colonizing other lands because there were people on those lands that they were going to go take care of, like take for their own right? That they said God shows for them. So what do I, and I was so taken aback. I'm still reeling from that because that just messes with my whole, my whole paradigm of what I thought that whole story was about. What do you, what do you think about that? I think for me, that's been very hard. That's why, I mean, I read the Old Testament and I just, I just can't take it. It's <laughs> so painful. Yeah. Okay, we destroyed them, and then they destroyed, and then we were told by God to come in, and we got to destroy these people, and then we got the 12 tribes, and then they got this certain this and that, and they go on and on, and I just can't take it. And I think... Sounds like uh, America the Beautiful. 
Yeah, ah, exactly. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> and, and for me, this the reason I'm coming from this place of visceral response to power is because often now we've got you know we've I've studied political science and philosophy, all these things, and and I don't come from a place of analyzing socialism and Marx. You know, people say, "Oh, you're a communist because you support rental, uh, you know, rent control." So I, you get called means for all kinds of reasons when it's just like somebody's greed because they want to own that property. And so I just cut through all that. I, you know, I, I'm not so good at theory and dates of history to keep track of who was who won and who didn't win. For me, it's always that same thing. You know, it's that place of power and keep track of it. And that's what we do today in the community. That's how you uh, strategize. Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at GodIsNotAnAsshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.